0: Health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own Number One Living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The Number One Living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland & Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to the I Am podcast. On here, it's all about human potential. It's all about venturing into that space of life experience that just burns away our needs for anything more than just being alive. Our guest on this Thursday's episode is Dr. Michael Gervais, a competitive surfer turned qualified psychologist and a deep researcher of what we're all capable of. He has an enormous amount to share and some fascinating insights to offer that, in my opinion, are going to resonate and hit home hard. So much of it helpful, too, for whatever's coming up in all our lives. I hope you really enjoy the interview with Dr. Michael Gervais. He's clearly a very smart and exciting kind of guy who's making incredible waves in what he's doing. Uh, for me, it was, it was fascinating listening and good fun, too. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am podcast with Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Michael Gervais, thank you for joining me on this I Am podcast. How are you today? Fantastic. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here with you. So thank you for including me. Brilliant. That's really cool. The podcast all about human potential. And one of the joys of that discussion is we allow it to go wherever and we love it when it heads into the boundless stuff. The, the paradoxes, all that kind of amazing, slightly confusing, but definitely inspiring area when it resolves itself through the conversation. So can you give me a little background with yourself, just in terms of how have you come to where you are with regards to your role, what you do, and maybe just a little bit about how you see potential as well? Yeah, perfect.
1: Okay, good. So as way of background, I'll do you know 30 years condensed down to like 30 seconds here, is that by so I was a young athlete trying to figure it out. And I had good physical, technical skills. And then come game day, my sport was surfing. And so it wasn't traditional stick and ball sport. But come game day, I was different. And some days it was good. Most of the days it was like, what just happened to all of that, you know, talent that I had, all the skill that I developed. And it just never really felt right. And so one day I'm, um, I'm in a competition. I was 15, a gentleman who's in my heat, I'm competing against. He paddles by me and it's perfect conditions, Johnny. It's like six foot glass. There's only three people out because that's kind of how competitions work. Every other day, there's like 30 out at the point. And so there's only three of us out there. It's great conditions. And he paddles by me. And this is my competitor, right? He sits next to me and he says, Gervais, I see you out here every day. Like, what are you doing? And I just kind of paused and he goes, he says, you got to stop thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And I thought to myself, how the hell does he know? <laughs> like, how does he know what's in my head? Because that's all it was. We're like, well, what if this, or what if that, or what about this score? And that, what's he doing? And how did he get that score? It was like, it was terrible. And then he paddled off almost like this mystical figure in my life. And he paddled off and like a good competitor, he did not tell me what to do with my mind but he told me what not to do with my mind. So I'm not <laughs> sure if this was like the, you know, the art of war or what, but yeah. So I did a little jujitsu in my head and I said, I said, wait a minute, hold on. Let me start thinking about what could go well. And it was at that moment, Johnny, I was like, oh shit, there's a different world. There's a whole different world inside of me. If I start focusing on what I wanted to see and feel. And so I did that kind of quickly in my head. Oh, And it was like a reframe now as a psychologist, now knowing what it is and it, it opened something up for me. So from that day forward, looking back, that was the first unlock that it was my mind. It wasn't my physical or technical skills. It was the way I was using my mind that was constricting everything about me. And Johnny, you'll well recognize that you've never choked, you know, on the pitch, like because we don't eat when we perform. (laughs) It's a bad psychologist joke, isn't it? But we, we, it, we choke off access to what we have available. So this was the unlock. And then it just led me down this path to go, what is this thing about psychology? So then really quickly, I got an undergraduate degree in psychology, master's degree in sports psychology, PhD in clinical psychology with a specialization in sport and high performance. And if there was such a thing, it'd be a subspecialty in consequential and rugged environments. And led me to work with some of the world's best in the most dire environments that we know, and helping them prepare themselves to be fully present so they can adjust in these hostile environments. And and then that led me to you, Johnny.
0: Wow! <laughs> wow! 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 Yeah! Yeah! Now you you cannot bring up sport. And that kind of story and not expect me to jump on it. Yeah. Come on. And the other, the other stuff you're bringing up at the end, I'm like, but I don't want to lose that. i mean, in rugged environments. We've got to go there as well. Mm. But the sporting thing immediately grabs me because I've become more subtly aware and sensitive to what's happening on those deeper levels. But at the time it's so, I don't know what to say. It's so bold in, in its experience. It's so just this and that. One day you're feeling anything's possible. The next day you're feeling everything's a problem. And then you talk about being in that flow state, you're kind of, everything's making sense and unfolding naturally, you're in the rhythm of the experience, you're you're just so, as you say, present. Other days, you're so in your own way and just so blocking everything. And I liken it to that changing room pitch analogy, where most of the time, especially when I was younger, I actually managed to unfortunately blur this when I was older. In the changing room you're kind of like oh my god oh my god what's gonna happen and i I want that reassurance i want that control i want something guaranteed give me something but then on the pitch you just drop it and it just happens and you make that unfortunate connection that one leads to the other so you start then doing some more suffering because you think it's going to bring some more joy (laughs) and unfortunately (laughs) like i said when i was older i brought that changing room onto the field with me and it started to disappear. But I'm interested, first of all, in this, you did all this psychology and, and the deg- degrees and all the research and all this amazing stuff. How much of that aligned with your personal experience of it? As in you were having these unlockings, did you feel the stuff you were learning to be slightly more literal and a bit black and white and a bit surface compared to what you were experiencing, Or did it actually merge for you? Okay, so cool question. Because early days...
1: The investigation was like, how do they do it? How do people like Johnny do it? Like how? And so there's two places to go to. It was like directly to them, but I didn't have access, you know, to to the extraordinaries. And so the next best place was there was an emerging field of psychology that was the study of excellence, basically. And it was research-based journals that were saying, okay, we sat down with 30 of the best in the world and we examined how they did A, B, and C. And I was like, I was crazy for it. And I didn't, you know, there was some interest early on, like there was lots of like almost pop psych self-help kind of guru stuff. And I, I wanted to understand what they were saying, but it was like so flimsy, like it it didn't hold up in laboratories and it was all storytelling and you kind of poke it a little bit and it felt like an Easter, like a chocolate Easter egg, you know, mm-hmm. like you poke it and it's hollow in there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. so. I don't know. I, I just couldn't vibe with it. So I really, I didn't know I was going to value science early, but that's what, that was the the initial consumption was about and education helped inform that. So it was for me to try to figure it out. So I didn't have any answers. And then when I started to apply it to my life, you know, big wave moments and fill in the blank when I was being tested, when all of my psychology was being tested, I missed the window, Johnny, the competitive window. I missed it because I couldn't pull it together. And so I understand what you're talking about, like the suffering and not being able to like express it on a regular basis. I missed the whole flipping window. <laughs> so like, so let, let me get to your question here is that I started to apply it to myself the best I could. And now I started to have access to some of the extraordinaries and I had this backing of science. So it was those three that led me to go, Oh, this is how it really works. So I became a researcher slash subject to the research myself. Yeah. And then I was okay. absorbed with how folks like yourself were like really applying it and then tweaking it. So it's good, if it's good in a laboratory, cool. But if it doesn't work in the real world environment, then it's it's kind of BS. And mind you, I came from action sports. And so if you like in action sports, if you make a mistake, you know, let's say skateboarding, you leave blood on the asphalt you leave a little skin and flesh on the asphalt In big wave surfing, you get held under and it's like, it's fucking scary, (laughs) you know? Right. (laughs) And yeah, you, you know, in rugged sport, you can get clipped, you can get, you know, like in, in American football, those free safeties are nothing to be messed. Like it's a collision that is like intense. (laughs) And so anyways, like, and you know this, so it's got to work in the real world. And then, so what I found is exactly what you just nailed, which is there's an anxiety pregame. There's a needing and a grasping for some sort of evidence that I'm okay. And when we can figure out that you'll never get that, it's not how it works. And because what we end up doing is grasping for some little evidence, like if I can just throw a heater or if I can just get a good tackle, I feel like I get my feet under me. Or if like somebody comes by and says, you look fucking sharp, dude. Like, are you Mm -hmm. kidding me? You're on it today. Boy, it's going to be. And there's this kind of, you know, external self talk you know that that somebody's providing and it's like a hype person that it's so temporary and really the net of it is to get to a place where we say to ourselves i love the unfolding i love not knowing i love putting myself in a position where i don't know how it's going to go because that's where i come alive And so I need to practice every day, putting myself in a situation where I have no clue how it's going to go. And I step into it with all of that risk and vulnerability and I let it rip. And then over time, I build a body of work, an internal body of work where I've earned the right to say to myself, I can do hard things. Yeah. Yeah, So at that point, it's like, fuck it. Turn on the lights, turn on whatever, whatever scenario we're down by this many up by this many, whatever the narrative is, it's like, fuck, I can do hard things. So let's go.
0: Yeah. That's when there's some serious freedom. I think that hit me recently, actually. So I, I've hmm. had stints in my life where I've felt unlockings and things have come so easy and effortlessly. And there things seems to be that synchronicity about everything I'm experiencing is kind of working for me. And you feel so worthy of being here. Everything's just making sense. But then things have come back so hard and you think wow on earth what's this about you know I thought I'd got past this and all these amazing things and during one of the most recent ones of those something really hit me and part of my mentality and that drive that that relationship with fear and the unknown from a very young age which really really I allowed to define me you know I had no real understanding that I that it couldn't define me it just was my reality but it was behind all that need to know to remove the unknown, like you said, to remove the unknown, to remove anything, to have that guarantee. But it also started to become the basis of my inner work. I needed to know what was behind everything. And it hit me recently. I was speaking to someone and they just said, the answer is it doesn't matter. And I was blown away (laughs) because I needed even to know why, but they said it doesn't matter. And buying into that was the invincibility pill. It was the, somehow it was that, release at this point, and I'm sure there's coming more challenges, but it was the idea that actually when you can not need even the reason why nor what's coming and to know that whatever's coming won't matter when that becomes the past, it's a freedom. But it feels to me, what would you put behind that symptom that I think so many people encounter when they are in their passion and you're in it and yet another voice comes up and just messes with that? Now, I, I feel like for me, it was this relationship with fear that was built built on this defense mechanism of you, achievement is the answer. Therefore, achievement is how you're defined. That's your safety. And therefore, the survival mechanism kicks in early. It does feel very widespread. All the people I work with, it's inevitable. The story that comes out at some point is fear and doubt. Yeah, I love how you just slid in a
1: really deep insight, which is <laughs> uh, fight or flight kicks on early. Yeah. So let, let's unpack that because I think that That little throwaway comment is materially important. And it is begging the question, like, why does that happen? Which is the essence of your question. And how is that related to identity? How is that related to a sense of self? But let's start with this early thing first, is that the fight-flight-freeze mechanism is designed to save us from saber-tooth tigers and from, you know, warring tribes. And it's supposed to kick on, like, and Mm. it's intense. The mechanism, though, doesn't turn on randomly. Your mind has to interpret something to be important, threatening, dangerous, intense. And when that happens, and you you turn it on. It doesn't just automatically happen. You turn it on by the interpretation of the event. And this is like no one can prove or disprove what I'm about to say, but when we use our imagination, the body has a hard time of telling the difference between what's real And what's imagined, especially for those with powerful imagination, because it starts to look real. It starts to feel real when you create that image. So the body, the brain goes, I'm not sure if there's a gorilla in the room or not. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's just turn on, let's default to action. So you're right. It turns on early. (laughs) We don't need that sensation of fight flight kind of freeze where our heart starts to pound, our breathing changes, we heat up our temperature, a whole cascade of things, predictable cascade of things happen in the body during breakfast, (laughs) during (laughs) warmups. You know, we don't need it, but it's there because our mind has gone there and the body goes, well, I guess if you're thinking about it, maybe it's actually happening. And I, like I said, I don't want to be late. So bang, neurochemicals flood the brain and body. Okay. So why is that the case? Because If we fundamentally believe that what we do defines who we are, then every time we go do that thing, our entire identity is at stake. So therein lies the deep threat. So yes, it is threatening. If the fundamental identity is I'm an explorer, I'm a go-getter, I am somebody who figures things out, I'm a great teammate. Like there's a different way of thinking about it rather than I am what I do. I am achievement. I am success. Then the freedom on the other side is, oh, wait, all I need to do is bring what's available already inside of me. And if I can do that and not be the performance, but be the performer, it's great. Not be the achievement, but be the achiever. It's great. And so it's a fundamental difference between being and doing. And this is an ancient conversation. Yeah. We're human beings, not just the doers. And all of this threat mechanism that we're talking about is when we over-rotate to the doing part of us and we've under-rotated to the being. Good news is you can train being. You can train your thinking, just like you can train your body or your technical skills. And that's what this beautiful science of psychology
0: is really about. Yeah, that's powerful. The The, the way that that came about, I guess, that comes up in me or has come up in me is, is this understanding when I used the on-field Persona as my guide instead of the changing room person as my guide, and listen to that voice. The answer came to me through that person that was the now version of you will always be equipped for his now. But you in the changing room, trying to be equipped for your future, sends you all over the place. The same way that you're trying to be equipped for your own past. <laughs> It's not but now you're equipped for and that trust of knowing that who, whichever version of me meets whatever's coming will be ready. You've nailed
1: it. So how do you train that, Johnny? Because I, I, I you know the way that I get after it is typically through mindfulness is one of the ways to yeah. do it. And then the second is helping athletes or even myself be in difficult, charged, emotionally eventful moments and then experiencing it and then debriefing. So there's a feedback yeah. loop about like, yeah. how did you do? And that question is relative to the person you want to be. So there's like a front-loaded experience when you say, okay, I want to be like this in these moments. And then we have those opportunities to do it. And then we quickly have a feedback loop about how you did. And so those are the the two basic mechanisms, like a high-performing feedback loop that's highly calibrated. And then the other is mindfulness meditation, which it's the constant refocusing back to the present moment. So you're
0: you're more equipped to be here. But so that's how I go about it. How do you do it? How do you practice it? Do do you know what? It's funny enough. It's exactly the same. There's two facets to it for me. One is the out of the environment experience where meditation means something different. You know, it's a slow walk in nature with a real sensitivity to the ground, to the breathing. It's the eyes closed meditation and the observation, the witnessing, hugely based around relaxation enormous relaxation of everything but then as you said what i find is that to put them put people in the charged environment or where the alleged charges lie pressure stress fear of failure and and then demand and then start to ask experience for the answer not the mind and we train it with regard to say kicking a ball I, i might do some kicking with a, a ball with people. And I I asked them to go into the relaxed state. or so even just beforehand to go for a walk and say, walk in a way that you've, in your ideal imagination, this is how you want to live your life, this walk. And to embody that energy. And then I say, right, turn around, kick this ball. And it's always a surprise to them. And then you can't help but leave them in a position of saying, right, now do it your way. And they do the four steps back, the five to the side. They prepare, they breathe in and out. They look up and down then they go and hit it. And it's like a sort of cheap, reduced price version of what they just did. And you leave them in a space where you say, look, give me the evidence now. (laughs) Come on, you can't cheat me. Tell me which one do you feel is you, which one's going somewhere. And I think you mentioned about that imagination. One thing I keep going back to is, is performing without the ball where your tempo is not affected by doubt. You don't have that build up flowing tempo that becomes interrupted by the hesitation and the deceleration of doubt. So without the ball, they have this ability. And what you're asking is, okay, now bring that imagination to the ball now. But as soon as the ball becomes involved, you're faced with that real world law that says, I have to be like this now that the ball's involved and to challenge that. And to see that I think our imagination lawlessness can actually impose itself upon this apparent real world law and that maybe we might have it the wrong way around. We think that actually there is a real world with laws and that the imagination is the cop out, but the imagination gets usurped by the real world laws. And that's what I feel you're talking about. Suddenly you see some stuff happen around you. And before you know it, that's in your imagination. And now your imagination looks surprisingly similar (laughs) to what you're experiencing outside. I love where you're going because you're entering into the parts of the conversation
1: that are actually difficult. And (laughs) most footballers, rugby players included, want to have concrete conversations yeah, I sure. just want to I kick the done, ball I would have when I was playing. Yeah, That's right. I would have done. How do I yeah. kick it more accurately? Yeah. How do I run yeah. a little faster? How do I just have more fun? Like it's, it's just more concrete. And I love where you're going. Cause I think where you're going is where most people end up independent of discipline is the central question. Like, am I local or am I mm. non-local? Am I here or am I somewhere else? And so it's like, okay, so now let's get weird for a minute, which is your body is local. And then when you say, you know, would you agree that you guide your mind? Most people go, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I, I determine kind of how I'm going to respond and what thoughts I want to choose. Okay. So then where is your mind? If your body is local, where's your mind? Mm. Mm. I don't know. I mean, science can't find it. We can't, we can't point to it. We don't know even how much thoughts weigh. We can point to the brain. We know where that is, but the mind. And then we have a much harder time saying, well, where's the eye that's guiding this mind of yours? Are they the same? Are they different? And so there's a local and non-local conversation to have. And then when you start entertaining the non-local part of it, if you can arrive to that insight, it gets really bizarre and it's wonderful. And so... When we start to guide our mind and we become more aware of our mind, so you can guide and be aware, uh, you can do both. And then we start to get, we call it front-loading. So we front-load the mental training using our imagination and other tactics to imagine how we want to be. Then it starts to get um, bizarrely confusing and radically simple because we all experience that, no, I guide my mind. And I choose how to think. And if I want to think about my future, I can go in a multitude of directions. Well, let's structure our time to focus on down-regulating and through like breathing or self-talk to be calm so I can see this beautiful future and then be very familiar with the way it feels to be that man, person, woman in the future. And then from there go, well, okay, I got to backfill this. Like, what do I need to train for that to be more true? What like now this, so that becomes the North star. And then from there you backfill like, I, I I would bet that you don't land on, I need to do 10,000 more reps, you know, in the next five years. Like it's probably not that it's probably like, no, I need to have command of my flipping mind. <laughs> I need to know how this thing works. <laughs> And um, just to have fun, just to make it super concrete, you might not know this name, but Sebastian Janikowski was one of the kickers at the Seattle Seahawks. And the kickers in NFL football, they, they put the ball through the upright after a touchdown is scored. So that's worth one point. They can also score three points on a field goal. And the field goal is lined up anywhere on the field potentially. And usually within 50 yards, the extra point is like 20 some yards. And so... They're considered specialists. That's the only thing they do. And so Janikowski does something very different than everybody else. Everybody else takes three steps back, two kind of measured steps sideways. They turn their shoulders and hips to the ball. They take a breath. They do something. And then they take like two steps in and and strike the ball. Okay. It's got to go through the uprights to get a point. Janikowski, he looks at the ball just kind of walks over somewhere near the place that he feels it's about right for his stride. (laughs) It's almost like, I love you, Janikowski. It's almost like he put the beer bottle down, (laughs) you know, ran out to the field, kind of looked about where it's going to go. And then, but he's one of the greats. Yeah. So how did he do it? He trusted. He trusted that this feels about right for my stride length right now. And once I get close to it, I'll adjust. And that thing's going through. And he was awesome because he was always like, Mike is like, um, let's do some psychology. And he's got this really deep, thick accent, right? And he goes, let's do some psychology. I go, great. What do you want to work on? He goes, nothing. Cause I just need to arrive. Right. And I go, yeah, that's it. You just need to arrive. He goes, great. We're good. I go, I think you're good. <laughs> you know, and so he was just a legend to work with. So anyways, to your point, it's like this, when this deep trust comes, you get into a place of freedom
0: and creativity in that call. Yeah. And that deep trust automatically brings you into, I think the now where your relationship with everything is feel, sensitivity and feel, and through the feel out of the feel comes the technique. Everyone believes that the technique will bring the feel, but out of the feel, a deep connection. So I would say, my focus at the moment is working on that imagination to create such a connection to the message you want the ball to receive. And that the more detailed that message and the more you embody something, you just get a reflection back. That's your dialogue. And then you work on your message and you'll get a different reflection. It's very cool. And you work on this. And like you said, there is no 10,000 hours. There's nowhere near it. You do need the first parts to understand when you haven't really done it before. You don't know what f- any of the feel is. You've got not enough reference. You've never kicked a ball on your foot. You don't know where it's. You're thinking your too
1: much about foot strike. You're thinking.
0: Too, you're thinking too much. Exactly. And once you get that first hit, you have your start. Your dialogue starts. That's what it can feel like. But then he gives you, okay, that's. So what about this in your imagination? Dialogue again. What about this? And if you stay true and refine that energy. It comes not in 10,000 hours. Now I did 10,000 hours. That would have probably been a, about a, a year's worth for me. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I yeah. had operations everywhere because it was through pure. I, I have to get, as you say concrete. I need to see the ball going over and over and over and over. And that way now I can trust, but you know what? It didn't touch it. This is why I think athletes get hurt
1: is their anxiety. Yeah, okay. Hold on. I got to be careful because you need to put in the, the work you have to put in reps. Yeah, of course. Right, of, of course, course. Right. Yep. So there's a prerequisite here. You and I are talking about post time under belt. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. Or pa- even better, it would be a parallel path, but you can't really substitute time under belt, the physical feedback loop that we're, we're talking about. But I think one of the reasons athletes find themselves compromised from a soft tissue perspective, even a mechanical stress factors is because of their anxiety. They need to see it, you know, 10 more times or hundred more times. More importantly, the coach's anxiety. We need to run it again, run it again, run it again. We're looking for precision, right? And so they're looking for like this soulless mechanical precision, as opposed to the feel of being fully embodied and making these decisions real time. So there's something that's waiting to take place in elite sport that is going to be paradigm breaking. And part of that will be when we can figure out this anxiety piece, downregulate the amount of physical reps needed, and upregulate. The mental reps that they're taking, and then at the same time, highly value the feel less the mechanical structure of the the motor swing. Now we still need the motor swing to be there, so we're not quite there even in like how to challenge coaches and athletes of what to do next. So it feels like we're having esoteric conversations, you and me, and you and your athletes or whomever about how to manage this. But the, the levers are clear. It's a feel. It is mental imagery. And it is making sure that we're addressing the, the anxiety of the overtraining physical, right? So those are the dials at least to consider. And if you can get the coaches to, to understand and, and not do like, okay, well, that sounds good, Johnny, but listen, we're gonna do 40 hours of physical training this week and let's add on top of it, another 20 of mental. Like that's not gonna work. So you know what they do now? Like 40 plus six minutes a day. It's like, that's not Mm -hmm. really going to move the needle, you know, but we know, we know from good science that mental imagery works. We know that. And so it's not yet systemic across most clubs. This is one of the reasons I love working with progressive coaches is because they make it part of the rhythm of business, the ROB as you'll, as we call it.
0: It's so interesting though, that I think as, as children, we value that imagination world so highly that we're constantly imprinting it upon Everything, as in by the way we play, everything has a a, a fantastical story about it and and we're in there. And yet at some point, some kind of sort of gentle switch comes where we start to value more highly the narrative coming from the outside. And even in my visualisation that I was doing as a player, it made me less trusting doing visualisation. Because the visualisation still felt like there was a, this is how you do it and you've got to be doing it right. Whereas I think at the moment what I can't find much of a substitute for in terms of its power is just feeling good about yourself. And I think that's maybe what the childlike thing has is that you don't yet have that challenge and so everything feels a bit playful. And so I've been around kickers and I've been one of myself. When you're chatting to the coach and they're chatting to me if I'm coaching... And they're talking about what's going on in their lives and they're telling me mid run-up about something they've been watching on tv and they're crushing it and now it goes against everything a coach would talk about in the change room wipe that smile off your face get your head in the game what are you doing mm. show me some suffering you know and <laughs> yeah, after the game. show me yourself your yeah show me get that this is down. hard yeah but yeah you you'll never amount- the game you
1: can't be happy
0: yeah how I'm dare not. you think about you know what you're going to do tonight after you lost the game and you actually as a coach thinking about what do I want for my team, I want the best of them. Well, when do they normally prepare their best? Well, when they feel worthy. So how am I going about bringing out their worth? But that question surely goes to you first. How do I, do I know how I bring about my worth? Mm-hmm. And sure, so I can't see any other way than at some point a coach or, or or a player has to be okay with everything. You know what? The not worst case coming. You could lose your contract. You're like, yeah, yeah. And I'll be absolutely fine. And I'll be there. There has to be this faith, as you said, this trust, that actually all these things are moving in the direction of the intention, if allowed. And that intention, as long as, and yeah, give me your view on this, please. As long as we don't insist on how it comes about or when it comes about, it will. That's my basis of it. Now I've tied myself to that. It must be like this and it must be now. And the suffering is immense. But what if, even the thing that looks like, according to the real world logic, there is no way this is part of the path. But if you just stay with it, you're like, <laughs> all right, that was, that was fairly miraculous how that's come about. I, I wonder what, you know, is that something that resonates in any way? Oh, I love it. It feels like candy,
1: you know, because like, <laughs> it's so sweet because you, you're talking about having a foundation of who you are so that you can trust no matter what happens next I'll adjust, I'll sort it out, I'll create a way through it. And I don't know exactly how that will go at this point, because that's, that's the spontaneity of the unfolding present moment. Like we, you can't really, you know, you can't predict what's next. So the intention bit is really important, which is how do I want to be in the unfolding, unpredictable, unknown moments? How do I want to be? And if you can get some clarity on how you want to be, not what is it is that you're going to do in those moments, but how you want to be. And it's really for me about being available to be aware of what's actually happening. So there's a, a deepening of the present moment experience and an awareness of my experience and the unfolding world around me. And if I can be deeply aware and I have practice of adjusting, then okay, you know, like I've done this my whole life and That thing that I'm going to go do doesn't define me. That's not what defines me. What defines me is my relationship with myself, my relationship with others, my relationship with the unfolding experiences. And if I can get down into how I want to relate to experience, again, the the relationship with self, others, and the unfolding moment, if I can get down into that and get some clarity, everything else seems a little easy, actually. You know, it's just a little bit easier, but there's such anxiety that we feel and experience because we just want to know it's going to be okay later. And we have that experience because right now we're so unsettled with how we feel in this moment. And the reason we're unsettled is because our mind is unchecked. It's, it is a 13 year old, you know, in a adult body that really doesn't have any business running the show, but it is. And the reason I'm saying like a 13 year old is because You know, there's some good reason. There's some kind of skills in there, but not really conditioned, not really trained. So you can train your mind to be more aware. You can train your mind to be more familiar with how you want to respond. Confidence is a trainable skill. The way you speak to yourself, being calm is a trainable skill, how you relate to the unfolding moment. And optimism is a trainable skill. Living with Passion in everything you do is actually a trainable skill because anxiety is also a trainable skill. Self-critique is a trainable skill. Frustration and intolerance and worry and depression are also trainable skills. And so if we're not careful, our body is predisposed to those more difficult emotions of depression and anxiety and frustration and intolerance as opposed to the, what I'll call the, the easier, but harder to do happiness, joy, et cetera, et
0: cetera. It's a really interesting, I find almost kind of paradox or almost an oxymoron that you're training optimism because you're training yourself into an expansive, almost like a self-expanding space. And it's almost kind of feels like, but training would be, feels for us, like you train yourself to a narrower and narrower point. But I think through anxiety and depression, those things turn in on themselves in that spiral. But optimism, curiosity, openness, those relationships you're talking about, they get wider and wider. And that journey, you train yourself into more of the unknown, I feel. You train yourself into more surprise That's right. in your life. To be
1: dramatic, Every thought we have either creates constriction or expansion. And so when you have thought patterns, which are a bunch of thoughts in a row, then you start to notice, am I constricted or do I have expansion? And you can map that physiologically as well. Do I have cortisol, overabundance of cortisol, where my my trap muscles are a little tighter, my hip muscles are a little tighter, you know, like and my, my heartbeat is pounding a little more to tighten me up. You know, again, we need cortisol, but And I'm talking about an overabundance of it. And so that's the stress response, neurochemical. And so we can map it physiologically, we can map it psychologically, and we can map it behaviorally that I'm either tightened up or I'm open. And it's that openness that provides more alternative options for this Mm -hmm. next moment that's about to happen. And that is trainable. It's totally trainable. And to your point, the biggest rock to have in the container is this idea that I am okay. Now, the big question is, how do you get that rock in the container? We have to decouple what you do from who you are. How about that? Mm-hmm. Just decouple what you do from who you are and explore, who am I? <laughs> who am I from what I do? Who am I? Yeah. And if you can get that conversation going earlier in life rather than later, <laughs> earlier in your career rather than later, then the career doesn't define you and you know be this heavy burden, high anxiety thing. It's actually opportunity as opposed to a limiter to what is possible
0: so again even to bring on that oxymoron you're training freedom Mm. and it's so powerful because freedom feels like it's something that and i'm going to ask you about this it's something that's almost a bit intangible it doesn't exist how do you have freedom in this world or whatever it is but again that conversation you mentioned about the local and the non-local as complex as it may be, if that's not something that you're familiar with in terminology or even in, in, you know, philosophy or, or, or experience, it's a conversation that has to be introduced much earlier. Mm-hmm. I think educationally much earlier to understand that because we get locked into that physical body and we stick the eye and the mind into that physical body and we are bound by the laws of the physical. Yeah. And so how can you not be fearful if who you are is stuck in this? plenishable, ever-deteriorating vessel That's that has a story attached to it.
1: Yeah, so that that's, I think, there's three kind of things that I think we need to square up with. One is that we're going to die. I think you have to square your shoulders to that. I'm going to die. Loved ones around me are going to die. Death is part of the equation. So, Johnny, when, when you and I say goodbye to each other, like, I'm going to mean it. I don't know if we'll ever see each other or speak to each other again. And I feel the same way about all of my loved ones is that when I say goodbye, I mean it. And so it also forces me into being as a practice, more engaged with the time that I have with you. And so it's a practice and it's, but that practice leads to squaring up that death is coming. And so that's one. The second is that if we don't know our tripwires for anxiety, it's a f- flipping long, hard way to go through <laughs> this, you know, like, so we got to, we got to square up like, know my trip wires. Okay. And the third is to figure out how to embrace that. <laughs> there's hundreds of millions of years that are happening on this world and this planet. And we're here like two minutes before midnight. If the, if the world history was a 24 hour clock, you know, we just showed up and we're barely here for a little bit. So to hold this, contextual bit that I matter and I don't really matter, <laughs> you know, like holding those two competing ideas together. I think those three are very important. So, the last one helps to create like, I don't know, let's let's have a little more fun, you know, because we're not really here that long, but people in my life, like I matter to them. And so, let me show up and be great to help them to my best abilities. And the middle one is like, that's my responsibility. So, I'm not Leaking my anxiety and frustration on people in my life, like I gotta know my tripwires for anxiety and the first one, which is I'm dying, you're dying, so let's recognize it and then what that leads me to is just a little more freedom and intention to being present because I don't know if we'll be able to see each other again.
0: Three words coming up there awareness there's being indulged or recruited by that anxiety where that awareness can help us get the early stages and by back into that that mindfulness and whatever it is we need to you know to release that before we engage it to a point where it grabs hold and i think the last point is humility you mentioned about that big third one and how actually the process of humiliation is something i staved off through my practice so yes i was doing everything i could to avoid losing i was doing everything i could by this crazy idea of letting people down and I was doing everything I could on probably one of the most base levels to avoid humiliation. Mm. Humiliation was essentially career-wise, image-wise, it was kind of the exact kind of representative of what death to the body was, was humiliation to the ego. And I would do anything. I'd be happy with losing and being terrible, but God, if, if there was humiliation there. And I think that humil- humiliation, that humility and that humbling nature of the journey is big. But the first point, awareness, why does it come? Because I can't say to you, people say, when is it? I had someone today to me saying, when did this? Because I talk about this all the time. When anyone I speak about, it always ends up being this because that's all there is. Um, and someone's saying to me, so, you know, when did this start taking hold? I'm like, when did I start becoming more aware? Like, I've got nothing. I can't tell you. There is no moment. I'm like, I'm aware now. So when you look at you, you sort of say such an important thing, but can you assist awareness or is it just one of those things you're ready for and not ready isn't it's better or worse than where you are, but just that, you know, awareness. Can you train it? Oh yeah. And if so, can you train it to that deeper level? Oh yeah. Where it, where it hits subtlety? I love how you're talking about this. And you, I can
1: tell that you've done a lot of work based on the the choices and the tone and the contour of your words. And so I can tell you've done a lot of work and it's a yes. And for, can you train awareness? There's three ways and mindfulness is the, it's the biggest rock for awareness. And I'll explain that in a minute. And the second is journaling. So okay. writing helps as a forcing function of which words to capture the thing you're trying to wrestle down and understand for better clarity. So writing can help create an awareness of what's happening inside of you. And then the third is conversations with people of wisdom. So not only do they add contextually some insight and, and perspectives about the external world, but they, they have a way of understanding the deeper part of the human experience and they can hold up a mirror to your inner experience based on the words and the emotions that you're folding in with those words. And so it's those three. So mindfulness is, for me, the big rock because it's always under my control. And the science is ridiculous about mindfulness. It's 2,600 years old as a practice, best we know. And it really is becoming more aware of thoughts, emotions, feelings, physiological sensations, and the unfolding world around you. But when you close your eyes, you become more aware of how thought one and thought two link and hook together and how maybe thought one and thought two create or lead us to emotion one or emotion two. And so this, this observing without judgment or critique, like how am I working on the inside? And if we struggle to have, to make contact with our inner life, we're not even in the game we're not even in the game of becoming still,
0: still paying the interest. You're still oh paying my the God. interest. on the yeah, You're
1: still paying interest. That's a great phrase. Yes. So meeting yourself and knowing yourself and increasing this very subtle awareness to how even just thoughts work together is a prerequisite to have deep awareness. And then if, if you think about thoughts this way, because we don't know where they live, how much they weigh, where they go, where they start, you know, we don't know any of that. But when we, in a disciplined way, we create space to just pay attention, to pay attention to how the inner life is taking fold, that we begin to have sensitivity to the thought trains. So you've heard a train of thought. And so thought one leads to thought two, just like station one leads to station two. And then eventually, if you get on, let's call it the D train, like a subway, if you get on the D train, it takes you to a neighborhood. Now that... Think about that neighborhood, like the neighborhood could be fun and happy and vibrant and (laughs) it's carnival-like and it's amazing. Or that neighborhood could be pretty gnarly, pretty scary, you know, like, but you've got to know, first, what train am I on? And then how long am I going to ride the train? (laughs) Do I want to jump tracks? Like all of that is this cognitive awareness and flexibility that we have the ability to do it right now we could have a conversation where both of us could be crying if we allow ourselves to go there. And both of us could snort laughter in the same kind of nanosecond. So you can toggle back and forth. So we're not kind of victims to our inner experience. We're just not aware. We're just really not aware. So mindfulness is one of the
0: big dials to play with. Yeah. And and it's and like you said, it's, it's, it's the game changer. Mm. And I spoke to you about that indulging a thought is essentially hopping on the train without the awareness and you're at stop three or you're not, you know, you're in between stops and there's no getting off, you know, like you're getting off and you're like, I I can't get off this train when it's unmoving. (laughs) So you end up stage four. And then by that point, you're a long way from home. How about it? Yeah. And I I think you mentioned about that thoughts constricting and thoughts expanding. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, from a feeling perspective, just is this thought making me feel good, but the ability to bail out, somehow through the mindfulness, as opposed to my job, you know, my indulgence of it was not, I'm going to go with it and see where it goes. My indulgence of it was, I want to get rid of it. I think it's
1: really hard to do to
0: like, Yeah,
1: what you're talking about is cognitive behavioral training. It's a branch yeah. in psychology that is like, put a stop sign up or like say no, or like, I just find that that friction creates it's, uh, it doesn't really work for me. For some people, it certainly no. does work, you know,
0: but for me. It, it doesn't me, work it doesn't, for me at all. Oh, it doesn't. No, doesn't. No, my, my point being, I think that what I used to think was indulging it would be following it, but actually me indulging it was trying to get rid of it. So when I tried to get rid of it, I was indulging it. When I tried to still indulge it, it, which was my big one, yeah. hugely yeah. indulged. So everything I did was indulging it until I came across this idea of just sit in it. And, and something comes to me now as a terrible analogy that, what it feels like for me is that those thoughts feel like someone walking into your house with a with a knife and immediately you look at them and you think, you know what it means. You're so sure this thought, feeling is what it means. But if you sit with it for a few days, you're looking at that person with a knife thinking, why are you here? You know, I've lost that immediate sense. Two weeks later, you're asking them if they want a cup of tea. And after a month, they're opening up to you and telling you why they're really there. And I tried to get rid of them before they even got in the door. And so I've never heard what they were there for until you sit, and that's changed my life. But geez, it's not easy.
1: I believe you. I believe it changed your life. I can hear it in the way you said yeah. it. Yeah. I, I learned from it. This is an elite athlete. We're talking about the way she speaks to herself. And I'll add a caveat here is that best in the world often are taught how to think, you know, kind of haphazardly by pop culture and anxious coaches, and good intended parents, you know, and their knucklehead friends. Like that's kind of how the thinking (laughs) operating system works, you know, all, all between the ages of like two and until you kind (laughs) of take some control in your life. And so we're talking about how she speaks for herself. And the the asterisk here is that if you speak to yourself in a self-critical way, you likely will get good. If you speak to yourself in ways that are fueling embarrassment, you'll likely get pretty good. Like, can't you hear a coach or a parent or somebody saying, you should be embarrassed by it. <laughs> like what you just did, your preparation, you should be embarrassed. So it starts to feed that thing that you were talking about earlier. And then, you know, the self-criticalness is like, what am I doing? This is not good enough. Do it again. What am I doing? Like, this? I'm a mess. I got to get my shit together. So that self-criticalness will get you extra reps. It will... It will square you up, if you will, and, and put the antenna up where you'll, you'll work hard in the, in the near turn. However, the cost is, a, is exacting because over the long haul, it's like a little paper cut, a little paper cut will get your attention, but over the long haul, it's death by paper cuts really. Yeah. And yeah. so one of the things that she taught me and she, we're talking about like how she speaks to herself and she's like, Oh, you don't want to know. I go, no, I I actually, I actually do. And she says, okay, I, I probably say things to myself about myself that I would never say to anyone else. Like, why is that? She says, well, certainly they wouldn't want to hang out with me. They wouldn't feel good about themselves. And so like, I never want to put that on somebody else. Like you fat piece of shit or you're too skinny or whatever. So, okay. And I said, so like, it's like, you're talking shit to yourself the whole game your whole life? And she goes, yeah, I'm, I am the best shit talker I've ever had. Like I am talking so much shit. And I said, well, is it working? She goes, yes, but I'm exhausted by it. And so then I pause and I can see her kind of looking up to the right and thinking and trying to solve something. She goes, you know what it is? I got a shit bird. I go, what? She goes, I got this bird that lands on my shoulder and it shits all over me. And I'm done with my day, and I got bird shit all over me all day. It's chirping in my ear about how I'm not good enough. And I'm fighting all day long. And I get home and I stink. And, and like she's going on with this beautifully creative narrative. And she and I said, Well, so what are you gonna do about that? Like I really curious, like, what what are you gonna do about this? She goes, I'm gonna move the bird off my shoulder. And so I saw her like a couple days later, or maybe it was a week later, I can't remember. And I said, So how are you doing with your shit bird? And she goes, I now see it when it's in the tree. And when it lands on my shoulder, like I'm aware it's coming over to land on my shoulder and bang, it's off. I go, cool. And she goes, you know what else I realized? It's not landing on me as much because it doesn't have a safe home. It's not comfortable. Like it was first was pissed off and it came back a little more angry, a little more intense, a little more chirpy on me, a little more shit on my shoulder. But then after time, it's like not there as much. And so I go, okay, so you know, saw her a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, I can't remember. And she's, I said, so how are we doing with it? And she goes, it's not landing anymore. It's like, it's mm-hmm. found a new place. I go, what are these conversations like with yourself? She goes, oh my God, I feel like I'm a new person. I'm not talking shit to myself. I'm free. I'm open. Like I'm having fun and I'm like a whole different version. So your knife, you know, version was her shit yeah. version. It's, yeah. And so it's, it's just, it's just a kind of a funny way to think about how do you speak to yourself and you don't need to be aggressive with like get off my shoulder like her you can just go oh, i see you and then attend in some other direction
0: you only get one thought at a time so which one are you going to choose it's it's, it's i've not i've not thought about it like that it's really interesting you should say that actually that self critical almost aggressive abusive nature to a degree can get you good and it resonates with me in, in, enormously. Two things resonate from it. First, the image of me coming up as I was doing, I used to do my kicking practice and I'd be very huge high expectations of what I did. I remember stamping viciously hard on my own feet as punishment for when I wasn't any. I remember biting my hand in ludicrous ways. And of course, you know what? There was a, There was a strength to that. It's not something i put out publicly too much to say that you know this will get you there but because of that nature you almost kind of you can get somewhere but it encouraged one thing in me which was that i thought there was an end to it once i got to where i got to and when i achieved all i wanted to achieve i figured that voice would suddenly turn into you did it my friend now we're buddies but we're good now you got the trophy yeah, I had a,
1: another, it was another athlete I was working with and it was an Olympic athlete and the national anthem was being played. And I'm, you know, I'm on the other side of the fence and she was crying. National anthem means gold. And she's crying on the podium and she comes over right after and she says, Whew, you know, just kind of one of those moments. And she says, could you tell I was crying? I go, yeah. And she says, I thought it'd be different. I'm crying because I thought that this in this moment, I would be different, but I'm still that same person that's struggling. This wow, fucking battle doesn't do shit for me. And it doesn't, you know? And so it's a cool story and it, you'll get paid better. And mm-hmm. there is a knowing that you can do some hard stuff, you know, like there's a lot of good in it, but the idea that I'll be different because of it is wrong. It, it yeah. is wrong. And I remember, so I've got a 14 year old right now and one of his friends broke into their, their parents' liquor cabinet. And so we're having a conversation about alcohol. And so I remember when my parents taught me about alcohol from a young age and they're like, it's no good. And all these kind of messages. And the first time I saw people drunk, I was like, well, that looks fun. Like, are you kidding me? Like I'm all stiffed up over here and they're having a great time. So I start to like lose trust in the message and the messenger that it's not good, it's no good, da-da-da-da-da. They didn't unpack it well enough for me to understand what was not good. And I say that to you because I think we need to be brutally honest with our own suffering and experiences, that we have compromised part of our wellness to be great. And there's a compromising that if we if we don't address that, like you're really fucking good. And so if you don't address what you did. And say, I wish I didn't do it this way, though. I now know there is a better way, but I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have someone to show me. So I made up this mechanism to beat myself up, to have almost corporal punishment. So if I felt that pain on my hand or foot, I wouldn't feel the emotional pain of, of let down and sorrow and disappointment. I could just transplant the physical pain for the emotional pain. All pain is physical and emotional. But if we think that we're, we can just have more physical, we won't have the emotional, it's not right. It's not how it really works. But your strategy is a brilliant little 17-year-old or 27-year-old, whatever it might be. But I, my point, my long narrative here is that if we don't say, no, it can work, but it, you won't find freedom, you won't find sustainability, you won't find peace and happiness, you might find hardware and money, again, temporary pleasures but you won't find the sustainable, deep joy in life and you will not understand your potential. You'll understand high performance, likely not sustainable, but you'll, you'll touch high performance. You'll graze it. But there's a whole nother arena, like literally another arena that you can play the game in, which is like, I don't know, everything else, the money, the hardware, all those things are secondary and they end up kind of happening. You know, like, yeah. because you're around now yeah. people, you feel this expansive way. You can look people in the eyes, create expansion and and space for them. They're operating on a higher level. They're not talking shit to themselves and beating themselves up in a way that is unproductive. There's a more playfulness to it. And yeah. I say all that coming from just like the environment you work in, some of the most rugged alpha male, you know, competitive environments on the planet. And, and I also put an asterisk. I love shit talking with people. It's fun. Like, but shit talking that pulls them down, that has the sarcasm that leaves them like really questioning themselves later, and the shit talking of self that's 10x that, that's the thing that <laughs> is problematic. That's the thing that's banter is great, but this shit talking, self critical, tear you down thing
0: is problematic. So, so that's, that's really interesting. I mean, it's something that, that just sort of, arises in me there is that an understanding would be that whilst I'm playing any of those games of lack, insufficiency, fear, doubt, the self-critical nature, all of that stuff, what I can genuinely say hand on heart is that looking back relative to if I can be accurate with my memory, which I find myself less and less so, less and less indulged by my own memory of myself, but, but if I can try and be accurate, What I know now that I don't think I ever really knew was how to connect to people. I could not find connection. Whilst I had this world going on, it was so self-absorbing. I became so self-important, I couldn't know a relationship. There was no such thing. Just because everything passed through that filter just leaves you so distanced from anything of real tangibility. And a lot of what that isolation is that fills with that self-critical voice is not that people are leaving you alone or that people don't care. I mean, middle of my rugby career I was hugely challenged because I was injured for four years. And when I came back, there was a huge generation gap and I couldn't connect. And I used to think it's them. You know, they don't look like, they're not like me and they're not like this and they should be doing more of this or whatever I might have thought. It wasn't. I couldn't feel anything and it was troubling. It made you feel so alone, but you think always that people need to do more, but it doesn't matter how much they do. The more they do, the worse it gets. The more that people try and help you, the worse it feels because you look at them trying hard and it still doesn't touch. And, it, and the other part that this is bringing up, I think is about that changing room vibe where it becomes a bit toxic, where you said the banter mm-hmm. and a lot of those inner conversations, are pushing to create power structures and get something out of someone else. And that word banter is a funny one. Yeah, excuse the pun. It's an interesting kind of area where there's so much deeper at play. Mm. You know, I bet as a psychologist, you could if you could be like an ear on the wall and listen to banter, I bet it must be incredible to be able to see what the depths of what's happening there. It isn't just, oh, we're just having a laugh. It's like, oh all kinds of different energies and people trying to find themselves, find their place, find their escape. And I, I reacted without knowing it very deeply. I found it very troubling. Yeah. And it left some, some decent, interesting scars. I think
1: people will ask me often, what's it like best in the world? Like what, what are they like? What, what makes them special? And like my, my glib response or my quib is like back to them is is something like, you know, they're really, at one level, they're great. And you'd love to have a dinner with them, but only one because it's always about them. So the narcissism that you're talking about, it's like everything runs through this black hole, you know, and, and, and then it never really comes out. So people around them, they don't really matter unless they're in service to the mission that is most important to that person. And if that person's mission is not about amplifying other people's geniuses or, you know, them flourishing and others flourishing because nobody can do this thing alone. We need each other. And so if, if they haven't made a conscious decision like you have in your life, like, whoa, like what, what, what was I doing? Not only is their level of suffering and struggle real because of the isolation, because of the separation, because of the narcissistic need to be okay just based on achievement, that left to its own devices is real suffering. And we'll be very clear that suffering is comes from two things: wanting what you don't have, and not wanting what you do have. And those are the, that is the source of suffering. That that way of living is brutal. And why do we they end up rising to the top? Is because they like they'll cut people. They'll they'll and I don't mean literally, but they're like you don't matter, you don't matter, you don't matter. And like they just make harsh decisions because it's so mission minded. And you are right. The banter, <laughs> the power struggle underneath banter is so obvious to a psychologist and, you know, probably you that's been around locker rooms mm-hmm. a long time. And sometimes it's really just fun, you know, and it's part of an unsophistic way of folding somebody into the inner circles. It's like, if you can have some banter, like you're okay. Like we can just kind of break each other down a little bit, but when it's really like, a power struggle and it's dangerous and you're like, geez, I can't walk through there because it's, it's weird. You know, I can't go into this conversation cause like I'm about to get shredded. Forget it. There's, there's no teamness in that. And so anyways, there's levels to most things we're talking about.
0: I think was what you're talking about. For me, there's always a great humbling coming mm. and it's coming sometime. And like you mentioned, there's a great humbling at the end of all our lives, mm. <laughs> a really great humbling. Isn't it? but to get it earlier is a privilege Mm -hmm. as much as as painful as it may be. And I've had humblings that I'm sure wouldn't match up on a, on a scale with other people's, but to me on my scale, as of now, they've been big and those humblings have been so privileged because with each one, I connect with how I care more about other people. So what are your great regrets? Do you know, I don't have them. I don't have regrets Mm. because I see the inevitability of all that has been. So for my humblings would be that that self-importance and you meet a situation where the situation cuts right through the illusion and you're forced to stand (laughs) aware of the fact that it's all an illusion and you can't get away from it. Depression, anxiety, being injured, yeah, little humblings, like watching people take your place in the team, get man of the match, I see. watching yeah. watching supporters bang around them, you know, having contracts taken off the table in front of you. Yeah, you know, like I said, being injured, being called on your own BS and knowing that it's there. But certainly I think one of the greatest humblings is that depression, that understanding that who I am, all the importance I think I am, and I'm reduced to this.
1: Did you struggle with depression?
0: It's always part of whenever I have face my crisis moments, which is what I'm talking about, which is where mm-hmm. the idea of me meets scenarios that reveal that the idea of me can no longer continue, and in that experience, it always tends to be the initial fight, the indulgence, the kind of work it out, use my intellect to work out through this, then it comes to the panic of oh god what's what on going on, the anxiety all the old stuff coming through and it always leads then to that depressive state where it's that kind of, Oh geez, you know, something's got to go almost like a grieving. And how do you work through that depressive state? It's, it's been for me, the unknown just sitting and sitting and quietly watching and in a strange way, just repping the unknown harder than I'm repping the known.
1: Yeah. So when you, part of what you're probably doing as well, when you're sitting and attending, we know this that when you can name an emotion, it actually dissipates the intensity of it, just naming it. Yeah. And so if you can welcome it, see it, know where it lives in your body, know that it's temporary, it's passing and changing as, as you're experiencing it. And then it's almost, it becomes counterintuitive because it feels so intense to go into. Let's call it sadness or hurt or loneliness. It's like, but then once you go into it, it starts to lose its intensity and then it becomes work to stay with it. (laughs) Yeah. So it is this, it, it is this kind of popping of a bubble, or like there's lots of kind of analogies that maybe you could create there. That, yeah, that's probably one of the ways
0: that it's happening for you. And I feel, to be honest, like sometimes I get a, there's a touch of sadness, as you said, when the intensity dips. Mm-hmm. This sadness, because it gives such clear direction and guidance when it's there. You know, you, you kind of when you when you reveal something, you, you look for the sensation when you close your eyes. It's like you don't have to look hard to feel where it is. But when you start feeling pretty good and you go into the meditative thing of becoming awareness and sense of everything, you, you feel like you're you're starting to search and create. But when it's there, it's it's intense and it really and it gives direction. But it's then a bit later, then it reveals itself into that opening, expansive thing. And then the imagination and and following the excitement, following your passion, finding those little, as was mentioned to me recently, those little breadcrumbs of excitement and just following them, see where they go. And then sooner or later, you look back and you just can't see how it ever happened. That's how it works. It is
1: how it works. It's, and it's not like I had a lightning rod moment and I was awake or I had a lightning rod moment and I was depressed. It is these small incremental changes to the operating system of how it takes place. And they're daily updates or downgrades. You know, like there's this, it's a daily thing that's taking place. And there's an aliveness in the melancholy. There's a sensitivity yeah, that takes place there where I'm i am more aware of like words that aren't usually available to me. And so I, I, I don't want to be insensitive to depression because that is by definition, a clinical term of depression is like a deep struggle. But when I'm in the melancholy experience or the sadness experience, there's a like, I can appreciate it. But I also don't have the fear of it sticking around for months at a time. And so I also don't want to be muted in my life. I don't want to have just one emotion of happy hmm. or one emotion of like sadness, you know, or anger, intolerance, or whatever the things are that are pro-social. I want to feel it all. I want to have range. And to do that, I need to go to places. I need to go to extreme ranges, you know, and I don't know, man, that's hard for me, you know, and I love it. And I've been practicing it for so long that, you know, I love when I have a community of people that go, Hey, how was that? And there's an honest conversation about it. Not like, yeah, it was good yeah pretty
0: good
1: <laughs> really <laughs> that's not what it was like for me like I, you know, I'm terrified to go
0: back <laughs> but that that's self honesty and that the for me the humbling that brought about that kind of people say it's great you know to share and to open up to others, but I think opening up to yourself with that self honesty is it's a massive step and I feel like for me the big change has been a little bit coming out of uh, of a career and whatever is that with the loss of I think yeah, you know, what it feels like to be a loss of that self-importance, but it still doesn't mean I don't have goals. Still doesn't mean I, I drive hard, high performance, but like you said, through a, an effortless kind of engaged perspective rather than a fight to control. But the interesting thing has been that with the loss of that self-importance, there's a, such a, an engagement now with the people I meet and the environment just within and without your, within and just outside your house that any, it's all enough. But when you have the self-importance, all of that stuff is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. You don't give a toss about the week. It's the weekend that matters. When people are there, you don't give a toss about what others are feeling. It's your feelings that matter. And when that goes, I think people are saying, what do I do next? It's like, but until you you see through that self-importance, you're always going to be thinking, how do I find something to replace what I had? Instead of how do I find out what me of now and me of always – has been looking for and it was sport and now it's going to find a new expression but I, and until I drop the identity of me the sports person and having those needs I can't channel it any other way
1: so there's this identity bit there's a performance based identity which is I am how well I do relative yeah. to others and there is like the industry that I'm in identity I am what I do so I work here or I'm a footballer or whatever. And so those are different, but related. And then there's a purpose identity, purpose-based identity. And a purpose-based identity is,
0: "Mm,
1: I'm trying to figure this thing out. You know, whatever the the big thing is, there's a purpose behind how I'm organizing my days. And the purpose-driven identity has three components to it. And none of them have to do with the self-narrative being ingrandized. <laughs> you know, it's it's something bigger than you by definition. Yeah. That's point one. Like it's bigger than me. It matters to me. This thing that I'm trying to understand better, or contribute to, it's like it really matters to me. And it's so big and wonderful and complicated that it can't be solved today. So it's down the road in its experience of a potential solution, right? right. So there's there's those three components to have what I think is a more meaningful way of identifying with the human experience. And so all that being said is you can dissolve identity too. You can be non-local and be deeply connected to that. I think that that's the graduate level program that's actually quite hard to experience, but it is available at the same time. And then I want to share with you another story is that one of the greats in NFL, his name is Marshawn Lynch, and he is... You look up beast mode or beast quake online, you'll see a clip of him and he's incredible. And we're having a conversation. This was public. It was on a podcast on the Finding Mastery podcast. And so he's, he's really free. He's just got a freedom about himself. And he's very intense. I said, how'd you do it? Like, how did you find this freedom? And he says in his, you know, unique narrative, he says, when in my darkest day, I realized I couldn't do it anymore. So I took all of my clothes off and I stood in front of a mirror and I was butt ass naked and I said, this is me. And I had a conversation with myself looking at my naked ass about who I am and who I wanted to be and trying to figure out between the two, how do I make this happen? And so really cool idea just to drop your drawers, get naked, stand in the mirror and say, who am I? And who am I working on becoming? And it's almost like a fun way to think about we're all clothed up. We've yeah. got like this armor on and we've got the, the shiny, you know, Gucci logo or the shiny something logo where look at this, look at the logo, not me. So strip down the armor, by the way, armor is very hard to keep polished. It's very heavy. Yeah. You need to keep it oiled, you know, like take down the armor and, and have the conversation who am I? That's yeah, a really, I think, powerful practice, yeah. even though it sounds a little weird.
0: No, not at all. I mean, to me, certainly not. It, it's almost like that question, like, what's what's original to me? What's what, original what's clothing? to me?
1: That's very Yeah, cool. what's
0: clothing? What's clothing and what's not? What did I come from? And, and like that non-local bit, you reduce and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, God, everything I've gathered, it's like I can – let me be free of that. It's, it's beautiful. I want to – just to sort of get your – final thoughts on this because there's been loads and loads of talking about that kind of achievement idea and when we stay in this, the field of performance there's always goal setting and there's achieving and there's goal setting and there's what's next and then there's this idea about i don't buy in too much to the what's the purpose of life you know it's for all of us to to uncover and to choose and find out or whatever but what for you is driving your intention for your life Knowing that, as we've spoken about, you're going to, you, whatever you want, you'll get there. And maybe we'll both know that that ain't going to be it. <laughs> Things aren't going to change when you, yeah, like we know the boat and the port and the, and the, and and the retirement package. I'm kind of like, oh, I love it. But, you know, and it might be to have some nice days out on the sea, but it ain't going to be it. But what's driving your intention according to those understandings you have about life? Mm-hmm. What is it? you long for that still lives up to that? Is this really going to be worth it? So the, the
1: way I've organized
0: my life is
1: the purpose. And I'll use that word for not the purpose of life, but my purpose in life is to help others live in the present moment. More often, the present moment is where high performance is expressed. Okay. That's cool. It's where wisdom is revealed and it's where all things that are true, beautiful and amazing are experienced. And if we can help, if I can help people live in the present moment more often, by doing the inner work, they're going to unlock and have access to the riches of the experiences of life. And so I'm not so interested in later. I'm more interested in now. At the same time, I do all of the planning about like, what do I want to be able to Whittle away at today so that one day the marble of David could be revealed. Like, so there is a bunch of that planning that I go through, but I'm far more interested in being in the unfolding present moment and helping people train their minds to have a deep sense of self so that they can do the same. And it's not more complicated than that for me.
0: It's beautiful. I think because there's a win win there in, in that for me and that it sounds like all of that work to help people realize then that also becomes your work as well you're not coming from a place of i've done it here have it by the very nature of exploring with them you you're self exploring as well and i think for me that really rings true in that it's not a time space thing going into that non local of who i am and it may take over 10 years according to the physical world narrative you may progress into some stuff but the actual experience will be now it won't be oh i've had a great 10 years of this it'll be right now this is my experience and revealing more about who we are i guess in that way is so powerful it does make me think you know with all these things i used to fight and push away it's come to a point now where the question is what else are you going to do I mean, a challenge comes, what are you going to do?
1: I think, I think we end up having a very similar conversation, independent of industry and walk of life about, yeah, I think, I think a big part of life is not just collecting all of the marbles for your own stash, but actually playing marbles with others. And so like, you know, like, like helping other people become or the sense of generativity to pass on and to support and challenge others towards their becoming, it feels, feels universal at some level and you know my italian roots my italian heritage rising tide floats all boats and so that's it feels like i'm i'm lining up some some heritage with some modern business practices and some ancient wisdoms and good old science and a community of people that say shit i want to kick ass i want to be i want to be my very best to help others do the the same in their life so that that quite simple
0: yeah cool man quite simple quite beautiful and uh thank you so much to michael gervais for allowing me to be part of this huge unfolding it has been that it's funny to look at it that i say this slightly cautiously because i don't want it to come across like i don't give a toss but i come into these conversations with nothing i just come going right let's go see where we go and it's just been you've led me every single thing has been like ah thank you no i want to go here and you're like, oh thank you everything you're saying has been an unfolding It's just phenomenal and you end up an hour and a half down the line going who planned that (laughs) honestly who was it was it you know did someone direct this or was it you was it me but it's like you get there and you kind of go how come you've said so much of what i needed to hear and and you're sort of like right but i guess yeah maybe that's part of you know like i said the old me would have the script right here next to the screen and it would be like, right, let me stop you there because I need to get to question 10, you know, <laughs> like, let me stop what you're saying. I need to sort this out. And I think, you know, I think I can feel, you know, what you do, I think. And I can, I can feel how it comes about even just very much bespoke to myself in this conversation. It's been, uh, a, been a pleasure. I felt, I felt
1: that there was a jazz that we were working from, you know, we, we, we both know the musical notes but how they come together is an unfolding (laughs) there that, you know, it's just, it's just jazz. And so freestyle,
0: everyone's doing a bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, man. So thank you, Johnny. Appreciate including me and having the conversation and it's been awesome.
0: Appreciate you. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative, The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy.